Welcome to Field Notes in Philanthropy. I am Patrick Center, News Director at WGVU Public Media. I'm Tori Martin. I'm the Director of Communications and Engagement at the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy at Grand Valley State University. And I'm Matthew Downey. I'm Director of Nonprofit Services, also at the Johnson Center for Philanthropy. See, you got to say the short part. Mm-hmm, I did. Interesting times to say the least when it comes to the nonprofit sector. We're seeing changes in politics and policy with tax reform. You guys know this intimately in your minds. What is what is happening on a daily basis as we charge forward into the great beyond? <laughs> Well, you know, I think we are, like you said, going through a lot of change as a sector, as a nation, and we're trying to figure it all out. And that's really what we're doing here in this podcast is we wanted to build a space where we could host some of these conversations and bring in leaders in the field and practitioners on the ground and just try to figure out what does it mean to be in philanthropy in America today. Yeah, I think reflecting on the last presidential campaign and really watching the media struggle in many ways to report on um, some spotlights that had been shown on our sector, I think in particular with the Clinton Foundation and the Trump Foundation. Um, There was confusion over how to report and how to tell that story. And uh, I think that took, allowed us the opportunity to say, hey, we can really have a conversation with the country and, and bring in some um, really important leaders who have interesting perspectives and sort of tell that story of politics, policy, and um, current events and how they interact with nonprofits and philanthropy. Just as an example, boil that down. What should the public have known? Can you do that in 30 seconds? Yeah, well, you know, I think there's structural things. Um, for example, with the Trump Trump Foundation, the Trump Foundation, um, the big issue they walked into was they made a gift to um, the Attorney General's office um, for her reelection campaign in Florida at the time in which she was considering whether or not she was going to bring about a lawsuit against Trump University. He made a gift to the campaign, and miraculously, she decided not to pursue the lawsuit. The challenge there is uh, for a 501c3pf private foundation, they're not allowed to make gifts to anything but a 501c3 nonprofit. So that was a political activity that's preventable. But to further complicate it, um, they actually misreported on their 990, which is their information return to the IRS, which is publicly available, that they had made a gift to a different organization. They changed the name of the organization right, 30 slightly. Seconds is up. <laughs> but this is the interesting part. We're getting to the meat. And it was an organization in Iowa. Well, and see, that actually (laughs) raises an interesting question, too, because if memory serves, there was also some issue about where the foundations were registered, what states they were registered in. And that is bringing up a whole new question in one interesting direction the sector is going in today is, of course, more online giving. And many states obligate any charitable organization to register in their state before soliciting in their state. And if you are a foundation in New York and you want to solicit in Iowa online, do you need to be registered in Iowa? That brings up all sorts of questions. Yeah. And it's about the evolution of the sector and how we kind of move from a sort of local experience to a national experience to an international experience. So it is, again, it's politics and it's, you know, interstate commerce. Okay, in 30 seconds, who wants to uh, inform everyone what the media did wrong when it comes to the Clinton Foundation? Matthew, can you do it in 30 seconds this time? Yeah, and time. I think it was a false equivalency that was trying to be stretched there because they both had foundations. I think that it is questionable what 
kind of access people got who gave to the Clinton Foundation, you know, got out of um, Hillary when she was in um, the uh, Secretary of State's office. However, it's an interesting thing because I think that the public can easily get confused that because the last names are in the name of the foundation, that there's this perhaps perception that the family's benefiting financially from the activities of that entity. And that's not the case. Um, that's our private entities that are separate from the families. And so, uh, you know, the Clintons are not financially benefiting from it. And so I just think a lot of confusion over what a family foundation is and, and how it exists and why it exists and what's the separation between family and the, and the foundation. Which again raises all sorts of questions about the professionalization of the sector and what that really means. But if your politics are left or right, sometimes you don't care about the facts, right? <laughs> I mean, it's all about your politics. Silence. Um, uh, crickets in the room. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And that is, again, another trend going on in the sector these days is what role should politics have in nonprofit work and philanthropy um, with questions these days about the possible repeal of the Johnson Amendment, which is the element of the tax code that prohibits 501c3s from endorsing candidates or from political activities. While that was not ultimately included in the tax overhaul that was just signed into law, it was proposed as part of the tax law. And it's, you know, it, it hasn't quite gone away. The conversation is ongoing. So that's a that's a huge and rising question. A lot of people want to be able to conduct political speech with their giving. And there are mechanisms for doing that, but people are trying to figure out what it means and where it is and where the dollars are and how they can accomplish their goals. You know, reflecting on the whole tax reform issue, I was pulling out some research that had been done by the Philanthropy Roundtable a couple of years ago, and they were really asking Democrats and Republicans their views on like charitable tax deduction. And what was interesting is like 80% of all Americans, regardless of the political affiliation, said actually they that charitable tax deduct- deduction should be protected. And so a significant amount of Republicans are very much in favor of charitable tax deduction. In fact, we find that that same study found that Republicans and independents are more inclined to be supportive of private charitable organizations taking on social issues to deliver social support systems through private organizations is very much in favor by Republicans. Democrats were the outliers that were really more in favor of seeing government handle some of these issues. And so it's just interesting to see how the sector played out in this most recent tax reform from a political perspective. It absolutely is. I mean, we're facing a situation now in which the Tax Policy Institute has estimated that by raising the universal deduction, itemization is going to go down so much that we may be looking at a loss of 12 to $20 billion in giving over the course of the next year. That's billion with a B. And that is equivalent to, well, equivalent is the wrong word, but it's estimated that that could translate into over a quarter million jobs lost from nonprofit sector positions, which has a tremendous economic impact, of course. So the question there, though, is are people giving because of itemization, because they get a tax break on it, or are they giving out of the kindness of their hearts, out of the feelings of, of wanting to share the good in their lives and to make lives better for others? But you know what's interesting about this? We teach fundraising to emphasize the human nature of giving and how it's, you know, every faith on the earth talks about charitable participation as law. 
And we know that it is an innate human activity is to be philanthropic. And we talk about that it's a relational activity among people. And so we don't really talk about it. We acknowledge charitable tax deduction. But when we teach fundraising, we talk about this human interaction that goes on. And then we have this challenge over tax reform. And and, and then we know that these are the potential, as you point out, the statistics that of what could happen to giving. It's just going to be really curious to see how that plays out over time. You're listening to Field Notes in Philanthropy. Let's bring in our first guest, Dr. Mark Hardy, your Director of Nonprofit Certificate Education in the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. You've written extensively on the history of U.S. philanthropy. Um, Some terminology, right? There's philanthropy, there's charity. Give me a sense of the meaning of some of those words. Well, the concept of philanthropy uh, was really comes out of the Greek mythology of Prometheus. And this was uh, not research I did. It was uh, research by one of my colleagues, Dr. Marty Sulik. And uh, he did the research into the myth of Prometheus. And in that myth, the god Zeus takes fire away from the mortals because he thinks they're silly creatures. He thinks they're imperfect. And he wants to create a whole new race. So he wants to destroy them and start over. So when he takes the fire away, Prometheus, who is a titan, loves the uh, the humans. So he takes the fire back from Zeus and shares it with the humans. And, the, of course, the gods were furious, especially Zeus, and they made fun of him. And they called him a philanthropos tropos, which was uh, a being who loves human beings. And uh, out of that, they made fun of his act of philanthropia, which was a love of these humans, love of humanity. Well, and it was don't a derogatory. They chain him to a rock and eat his liver. Eventually, or yes. Something? <laughs> <laughs> until Hercules, until Hercules saves him. But uh, he, but the myth of Prometheus, he gives fire back to the mortals, and he uh, he helps them not only uh, survive but thrives because now they can make weapons, they can make uh, things to cook with, they uh, can see, they have heat, so on and so forth. So the the origin of the concept of philanthropy, which f- was philanthropia in the in the Greek times, is not so. It actually has nothing to do with money. It has to do with giving people the tools to create a better life. So that's where we started with this. But it, in the Greek times and also in Roman times, philanthropy was kind of a. It was kind of a social contract. Uh, the, the, the contract was, we are wealthy, we will help you, and we will give you, uh, we'll give you entertainment, we'll give you food, as long as you allow us to remain wealthy. So there was a social contract that as long as the wealthy took care of people who were not as wealthy, um, then society worked well. And then when the Catholic religion uh, came about, the concept of caritas or charity started rising and charity was because with philanthropy was like we'll give to the deserving poor or to people that we feel it's in our best interest to give to but in charity as jesus said you know you should give because you love uh, and there should be no conditions you give because it's the right thing to do and so in the Catholic Church, people gave uh, because it was the right thing to do. It was a moral obligation. It wasn't so much a contract. Fascinating thing to me about that, too, is that 
there's this angle of justice running through concepts of philanthropy. So, of course, within Judaism and uh, my understanding is also within Islam, the concept of philanthropy is very much about justice, not just about love or not just about a social contract that allows everyone to you know, more or less stay in their lane. It's much more about you have the resources to share. Therefore, you are morally obligated out of a sense of justice to share, not necessarily to give to make yourself feel better or because you're, you know, you're doing so well so you can afford to be nice. It's, it's really from this sense of justice. It is your responsibility as a human to help other humans out. Absolutely. And a lot of that, especially in the Jewish religion, comes out of their history of being persecuted. Right. And so their belief is you help strangers because like them or like us, they were strangers in a land. You know, one of the rules was that you left a couple rows, rows of crops for people who were starving and didn't have anything to eat. There was um, the seven-year jubilee, which was where you forgive debts every seven years, which is what basically our bankruptcy laws are based on. Because bankruptcy, you can only claim every seven years. That is based on a jubilee. Wow, um, and so there are a lot of our U.S. laws on giving, on forgiving, uh, those types of things that are based on uh, religious understandings. Uh, foundations, for instance, were really the creation of the Muslim faith. And uh, that has carried over into the U.S. The Muslims were the first ones who really started creating foundations. The Greeks did it too, but of course that civilization kind of crumbled apart and was taken over by the Romans. I find this issue about sort of justice and, you know, as motivations or ways of rationalizing sort of philanthropic behavior. But what we know now, which is a relatively recent finding, you know, at least within the last decade or so, that the human brain gets this injection of dopamine every time we do an act of kindness or generosity for somebody else. And so I think it drills down that this notion of sort of it's an innate human behavior and we get pleasure out of being philanthropic. And I wonder if that changes how we think about why we have engaged philanthropy throughout all of mankind, if we can explain it differently or if that impacts our historical understanding of why we've done it. Well, I think absolutely, you know, it gives us purpose. Uh, it gives us a feeling that we are doing something larger than ourselves. And that in itself gives us a sense of fulfillment and uh, a, a fact that our life does matter. It's not just going to work, uh, making a living, paying your bills, that there is something you're doing beyond yourself and beyond all that day-to-day -day stuff. There are emotional reasons we give. There are religious reasons we give. There are certainly financial reasons we give. I'd like to touch on two um, before we are, have to end the call, I, a couple of concepts. One is um, just sort of how do you reflect on so what's been going on with tax reform today and this understanding of this historical roots of philanthropy is one sort of question I'd love to hear you talk about. I give to causes because I, I really do believe in them, but it is nice to get the tax write-off. Now, a lot, of, a lot of people are worried that um, they're not going to get the kind of donations from people who are like annual fund givers that maybe the people give away, you know, a couple thousand dollars a year uh, and that those donations are going to drop because people won't. I mean, there's no reason to even donate because you, you can't write it off. But the fact is, I think that people that give away that money aren't 
thinking, oh, I can write this off on my taxes. I mean, let's face it, they could take that money and put it into an IRA and and write it off on their taxes. I think the biggest impact is that we may not get all those letters at the end of the year saying, hey, you've got two more weeks to donate uh, to write it off, because that simply probably won't be the case for most people. Yeah, it will really um, be fascinating to see how the giving cycle changes over the year, or if it does, right. if, if everyone is just used to sitting down December 15th with their families making decisions about the causes they want to give to, or whether right. it really becomes, you know, oh, it's July 12th, I don't have anything to do today, let's decide what we want to give to. You know, Absolutely. is that going to change our work so much, or is it in fact going to stay the same because that's what people are traditionally used to? I think it's going to change the way money is raised. You know, right now there's a big push at the end of the year. Now I think they're going to have to develop very close relationships, even with the small donors, to get them engaged. Where you're also going to see a big impact is on the higher end because they've raised the estate tax. And so now, you know, whereas people used to say, well, if I'm going to get taxed on it, I'm going to give it away to charity. That's not necessarily going to be the case, depending where they are in their in their uh, in their wealth cycle. Another one, as I would like to understand a little bit about the nonprofit organizations themselves and just a little bit of the history of nonprofit organizations and their structures and how we haven't really done a lot of uh, revision of, of the laws that we've, we've had in our country since pretty much the start of the country. Actually, up until uh, 1954, there was no official thing as a nonprofit organization. The IRS did not codify nonprofits until 1954 when they put in the 501c categories. And everybody talks about the 501c3s, but actually there are, I think, 29 different categories really? of nonprofits. Oh, yeah. Look, I know about um, C4 and C3, but not a, none of the rest. Well, yeah, the C4s, go back and read C6s. my tax code. We just added yeah, four I mean, in the last two years. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, and uh, for instance, you know, uh, country clubs are nonprofit organizations, but they're under a different classification. And C- the uh, NFL C7. probably gets its yeah. own C12 or something. Well, they were C6, but they dropped theirs now. Oh, yeah, well, they dropped. Mind. Well, they they make a lot of money. We're getting a lot of pressure. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not, dist- not going to say that that was a bad decision. Profit <laughs> distribution is attractive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, details. So, and the nonprofit sector has become much more professional. It used to be mostly volunteer. But starting in the 1950s with the codification and also sophisticated fundraising, uh, you, uh, firms uh, in the early 30s and 40s. Uh, started to uh, arise that were fundraising firms, American City Bureau and and places like this, they went in and they raised funds for uh, nonprofit organizations. And then nonprofit organizations started hiring, you know, executive directors and fundraisers. And so over the last uh, 50, 60 years, it's really uh, come to this professional evolution of the nonprofit sector, whereas before it was pretty much, you know, it was a lot of high society people who are running the symphonies and the, and the arts programs. And, uh, you know, the, the Red Cross was mostly volunteer and so on and so forth. We did have organizations that were set up for social purposes, like voluntary associations. Yeah. And we've often right. talked about how the structure of those organizations in colonial America, even, was really the same structure that we have today with the board of directors that's in charge. We sort of codified that into law in the 1800s, even though we didn't really create the 501c category until much later. But that's, there's truth behind that. Is that, is my understanding correct? I mean, there were charitable organizations, but 
They they weren't really formal as far as the IRS was concerned. What a fascinating conversation. And we uh, really appreciate the opportunity to look backwards and kind of understand where the sectors come from. Well, thank you. Anytime. And uh, good luck with your show. Hey, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Have a good rest of your All day. Right. All right. Take care. Take care. That was Dr. Mark Hardy. He's the director of nonprofit certificate education in the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. You're listening to Field Notes in Philanthropy. So, Tori, at the end of that last segment, we were kind of talking about the dynamics, the meaning behind philanthropy and charity and the social contract. I think our next guest might be able to clear some of that up. I think you're absolutely right. We have Ruth McCambridge uh, joining us this afternoon. She is the editor-in-chief of Nonprofit Quarterly. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, uh, as Patrick was saying, we we would love to hear your thoughts on where the nature of the sector is today. Do you feel that people are engaging in philanthropy from a charitable standpoint or from a social contract or justice standpoint? Or do all of those things really mean the same thing? Well, if we're just talking about giving on the giving side of things, I mean, I think people give for a variety of reasons that have to do very often with their most deeply held values. And that could be everything from giving back out of a sense of of mutual responsibility, kind of in the classic common sense. I, I, um, you know, I live here, therefore I must, I must make it help make it good and help make it sustainable. But there's, uh, you know, people that give out of religious obligation and out of family tradition and out of empathy or a feeling of immediate kind of sadness or, or pity or a need to reach out to someone that they see is very clearly needs them. But I think people also give, in some cases, out of a sense that they want to build something that is different or that is, you, you know, will provide some difference or value to to their community or um, the nation or the world that that will it will just lead to more kind of shared wealth and happiness and sustainability. So I think people's reasons for giving are all over the place. I wouldn't say that I think there's been a major shift. I think, you know, among philanthropy, institutionalized philanthropy, those shifts do happen. So people in those realms tend to argue with each other about stuff like that. You know, should should we be more strategic in our philanthropy? Should we address emerging needs? Should we be paying attention to the disruptive entrepreneur? I mean, those discussions go on all the time in institutionalized philanthropy. But I think that individual givers give out of much more personal rationales for the most. You know, it's so much embedded in that conversation on those topics, I think, as particularly institutional philanthropy is looking at, but also nonprofit organizations is this, the role of equity in our sector and inclusion. And I know I was just recently watching a webinar that you hosted uh, with Jean Bell and other colleagues, and you were talking about sort of organizational structures and how they evolve and how can we shape a sector that uh, is truly equitable and things like shared power and uh, co-leadership. And just wondering um, if you could talk at all about sort of your knowledge and experiences in that area as sort of the evolution of the sector here. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I, I mean, this is it's uh, it's an interesting area because I came I came into the sector just out of a personal reflection. I came into the sector during the '60s. That's how old I am. Wow. <laughs> so, um, at that point, there was actually a lot of experimentation with collectives and cooperatives and. You know, some if you were doing feminist work at all, you were pretty familiar with with some of those experiments, and and you know they existed in other realms of work as well. But um, but I think that over the years, what's happened is that people, in an effort to professionalize, in other people's terms, began to set up these structures that lo- that look like. I mean, they basically were the default model of the industrial age. Yeah. They were very hierarchical. The pay grades went from high to low. The, you know, there were multiple kind of levels between the person at the top who was, who was directing the whole thing, and then never mind the people who were being served, but the people also who were doing the frontline work in some of the larger agencies. And I think that that it be, it became the default model for nonprofits as it was for for profits. And I think, you know, ironically, we're revisiting this idea of shared leadership and a and a more intelligent organization, basically, and a more intelligent and engaged organization. At the same time that a lot of for-profit organizations yeah. are doing the same thing at this point. So to some extent, this is, you know, the shift that we're seeing from really, you know, uh, defaulting to the hero leader as the savior of our organizations and our sector and of, you know, a field like civil rights or, or immigrants' rights or anything like that, it's moving more to a collective image. And mm. then along with it moves our notions of leadership inside of organizations. And that's very exciting because organizations that really do encourage people to act intelligently get much more intelligence out of their workforce. And right now, I mean, some of the other issues involved with that is that, you know, frankly, we're in good economic times and people have jobs. And so, you know, it's pretty well known that in bad economic times, you just have to have money to get people to come into your workforce. But in good economic times, you better have things that appeal to their sense of the value of work and their particular value to the work, or you're not going to keep the best employees. And so there's any number of reasons why it's important for us to really, in in this sector particularly, where we are so much about collective action, that's our roots, that's where we came from, for us to be able to really embody that within our organizations in terms of our leadership structures. I think that's so interesting talking about that as our roots because you know now when we have the conversation about sort of evolving organizational structures and perhaps going you know sort of back into this more collective action collective structure I I see personally I see some generational differences in willingness um, and comfort level in doing that I think millennials today are quite interested in exploring new organizational structures that are are more equitable and sort of flatter in in nature 
and perhaps it's um, boomers and even some Xers are, you know, a little hesitant. So whereas boomers were coming of age when that was maybe the roots of the sector, there's some hesitancy because that hierarchical structure, there's a lot of societal comfort in that structure. I think there's a lot of societal comfort in any familiar narrative and a narrative that says you have to have one brilliant person at the top and a couple of people who are kind of semi-conscious and then (laughs) unconscious doers at the bottom is not exactly appealing to a lot of people at this point. And so while it may be comfortable to other institutions or even to people who say, you know, who feel like they don't, they're not comfortable with ambiguity or the even the ambiguity of the change between a hierarchical and a more shared structure, um, the comfort on the other side is really quite significant as well. And I think it's just whenever you go through a kind of a economic era change, you're going to see organizational forms change as well. And in this sector, as in other sectors, the more you resist that, you know, the the less facile you're going to be with it or, or you know, the, the less able you're going to be with it. Because it does take some getting used to. You know, people who are used to working in strict, boundaried, hierarchical organizations would have problems making that transition in some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, But more and more, as you said, you know, generations coming up expect that not only will we be networked inside of our organizations, but we'll all be heavily networked outside of our Mm -hmm. organizations Mm -hmm. also, including at the governance level. So it strikes me as rather interesting that not only is there sort of this economic era change, as you say, going on across American society or, or the world at large. But that's also sort of going on within philanthropy itself. You're talking about professionalization, even the word feminism coming up here, that philanthropy, nonprofits, foundations, any organization who's in this sector is sort of trying to think now about what it means to be a professional structure. So we're kind of looking at, you know, business models, at governance models, mm-hmm. and at where we are already to say, you know, is this working for us? What is What do we expect of ourselves and what is expected of us? And that's such right. an interesting kind of challenge to be facing of what does a professional philanthropic sector look like? Right. And, and you know, I, I think our notions of what a professional is has to change. I mean, I remember uh, Jim Collins, who wrote one of the great management books ever, Good to Great. We asked him at one point to comment on the study that had been done by a group in New York, that Community Resource Exchange, that had done 360 evaluations, which are these very inclusive evaluations with organizational leaders, both in the nonprofit and the for-profit sector. And what they found was that the nonprofit sector leaders actually rated higher. But there were areas in which the for-profit sector leaders rated higher. And those were the areas of kind of push leadership, of directive, highly directive leadership. And what they found was that, in fact, 
nonprofit leaders had a lot more facility with things like legisl- kind of legislative, legislative kinds of negotiating, negotiated leadership. And so that ability to kind of address multiple stakeholders, uh, not be faced with a single bottom line, but have to balance between bottom, bottom lines, and all of that that makes the work in the sector so complex. Mm that those were the things that nonprofit leaders were really good at. I think that in this very changed environment, what that says to me is we've got a strategic advantage because we already know how to do that. And so we should be at the very lead of experimenting with shared leadership and networked models because it number one, it's kind of it's it's native to us, like we already do a lot of what's required in you know, addressing multiple interests at any one time. And number two, because it's the way of the future. It is time to evolve, right? As a sector, it's time to evolve. (laughs) Time to evolve and and share some leadership here in the room. Uh, Ruth McCambridge, editor-in-chief of Nonprofit Quarterly. Extremely informative. We'll have you back. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a really phenomenal conversation. I'm so glad we had both of them on with us because I felt like I have a clear sense now of philanthropy as sort of an individual to individual or person to God sort of quest, person to Zeus. And now we're kind of looking at it as a full profession as it transitions, you know, through the 20th century into the 21st. I mean, things are changing. And as Ruth mentioned, it's a fairly young sector. Yeah, but yet it's this complicated human construct, right? And I think that both interviews were evidence of that. I think when people join a board, they think they're it's a cute charity that, you know, feeds hungry kids and and but they're really stepping into this rather complicated, you know, social human construct. With lots of stakeholders, one of our favorite words in this sector, stakeholders. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but it brought up a lot of great information that we're going to want to dig into in future episodes. So, we really just appreciate everyone who joined us today and we look forward to uh, having everyone back with us. It's going to be great. I think there is fodder for future episodes. I'm Patrick Center for Tori Martin and Matthew Downey. I'm looking forward to the next group of stakeholders joining us on Field Notes and Philanthropy. Field Notes and Philanthropy is a partnership of WGVU Public Media, the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy, and Grand Valley State University. Our technical producer is Rick Beerling. Joe Moran composed our theme music. The views and opinions expressed on Field Notes in Philanthropy do not necessarily reflect those of WGVU, the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy, or Grand Valley State University.